Ray, the rats will play. Or is it the other way around? When the rats away, the cats will play. <laughs> That's not bad. Uh, and uh, this is your favorite rat here. And uh, since all the big fat cats here at the hot boiler are all away, enjoying their 17-day holiday. <laughs> They're sitting on the fan tail of their yachts. Or they're down around the ninth tee, squatting around there. Uh, we're here, and uh, you're there, and... One of the great things about uh, working on a holiday is that there's hardly anybody listening, so we can say a lot of things, play around, walk around here, the water coolers open to everybody on this thing. Oh, yeah. And the office is still here, by the way, you guys are worried. I ain't getting away from you. It's Memorial Day Eve, which might not mean much to you, but uh, it means something to a lot of people. And uh, and it really isn't connected much with the patriotic events. But uh, right now, at this very instant, right now, at this minute, in the dark, out in that great broad plain of Indiana, and by the way, are you aware that they call uh, Indianapolis... A cornfield with streetlights? Uh, that, <laughs> that's what it's called. I realize what it's called in Indiana. Yeah, there's a lot of people. Of course, they call it a lot of other things. I, it's also known as uh, probably the greatest speed trap in the history of Western man. Uh, every time you get near Indiana, you get a $27 ticket uh, just for getting near there, you know, especially if you've got an Illinois plate. Uh, they give, you know, out in certain Midwestern states, Al, are you aware that they give the officers, the arresting officers, get certain uh, merits? Uh, he gets an extra number of points for various out-of-town, out-of-state licenses, and they, they're graded by the amount of uh, antagonism that Indiana feels for the other states. Now, I, for example, an Illinois license, which is a fairly common one in Indiana, it's the next state, say. An Illinois license is a one-and-a-half-pointer. Uh, a Wisconsin license is a one-and-three-quarter pointer. But, boy, you really score big when you get one of those guys from Ohio. That is big game, and the biggest game of all is when you get a New York car. Somehow, the New Yorker all over the country is, he's a, you know, he's kind of a, well, you know, he's a smart aleck, you know, he's good. He is, you know, he's just from New York, he's from the big time. Now, he may be from a town in New York State that has taller corn, higher pine trees, has more bears per square foot, you know. <laughs> The town consists of three people, a gas pump, and 19 skunks. And that's the town. It doesn't make a difference. That New York plate shows up, and every, you can hear the hum out in the darkness. You see this car come over the state line, seeing it's got those orange and black plates or those orange and blue plates of the New York plates. See? And you can hear the hum of quietly idling Harley Davidson police special motorcycles. 400 guys after them. <laughs> Wait for them to do just one thing. You know? Because a New York plate is a 10-pointer. That's a ten-pointer, and there is an old, there is an old, uh, it's a tradition, I suppose, in, especially in southern in Indiana, it's a little different northern Indiana. Southern Indiana, if a state trooper nabs five New York plates in one month, he gets a week off. And so naturally, that's kind of like, you know, king corn stamps. And, uh, <laughs> hey, I wonder, I wonder if the day will come when you'll be able to pay your traffic fines with S&H green stamps. 
uh, or on the other hand, or if the judge will give you green stamps after you paid your fine. Uh, speaking of that, a guy wrote me a note, and he says, Shepard, he said, listen to the radio, and he says, it's got to come, there's got to be a day when a chick will sue for annulment of her marriage on the grounds that she was under the influence of Compose when she married that slob. <laughs> Have you heard those commercials? Yeah, you heard them. I mean, you know, here, here you, hear, you hear this uh, this guy, and he's going, da 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 and then you hear the other voice says, Charlie, I can't understand what's happened to you. You used to be the rottenest teacher on our staff. As a matter of fact, you were known as old Hell on Wheels Clarence. Everybody hated you, and now you've been promoted to the board of directors, and you're the assistant principal. And he says, well, that was back in the old days when I was a nervous, tense person. And uh, I had these stainless steel fangs. And then I discovered Compose. Life is one long song. As far as I can see, there are fields of waving daffodils. As far as I can see, there are blue skies. There are pink clouds hinged with gold. And life is one long song. So let's all march together. Hold it there, Al. Reset. Reset. Reload. Relock. Ready on the right, ready on the left, ready on the firing range. Do you know that uh, that uh, there was a recent uh, prediction made by a leading sociologist to the effect that by the year 1990, due to increasing pressures of advancing population, and there ain't no place to park, and uh, the air is going to be all polluted, and people are going to be getting tickets just for walking around on the street... You know, yeah, they're going to eventually. There's going to be there's going to be traffic police. They claim by 1995, maybe there will be traffic police on sidewalks. And and if you walk on the wrong side of the sidewalk, like heading into the stream, you'll be able to get yourself a five dollar ticket. Uh, if you turn left into Corvettes without putting your hand out, which could knock four little old ladies to the ground and run over six kids, you'll probably get a fifteen dollar moving violation ticket and all that stuff. He said that by the year 1995 or so, that a good, in fact, a major percentage of the people will be on continual, and they'll take it just like every morning you take your Wheaties. Or, you know, like you take your uh, vitamins every morning. They will be on a continual diet of tranquilizers. And you'll take them just as normally as you take, uh, uh, you know, vitamin B or something. And he said this will be because man is not built for what man has created. And until a new type of man evolves, very new type, who's totally nerveless, uh, totally insensitive to anything, and he has leather lungs that are lined with asbestos and can breathe in all the air from Jersey, that, the <laughs> that the, until that time, man will continually be constantly under the pressure of taking various types of, uh, you know, little things to keep him happy. It may be, uh, oh yeah, it's, it's all connected with the LSD thing. You know that you can buy LSD cigarettes now? You can buy a package of cigarettes that's on the side LSD. Uh, I kind of think they missed the boat, though. They should have a cigarette named Pot. <laughs> the guy gets busted for smoking pot in the mailroom. <laughs> Who knows? But uh, nevertheless, uh, you, you, get, you get all deeply involved uh, with, with modern life. And, and uh, you, know, you, you sometimes have a tendency to forget that one of the basic drives behind man always 
is what they term the Fiesta Drive. Now, what is it? <laughs> what is the Fiesta Drive? Nobody knows where it comes from. No other animals do this. As a matter of fact, uh, there has been uh, one, at least one physical anthropologist I know of, has been studying the celebration habits of various lower animals. Now, they, they can't find much. I mean, it has never been recorded that 522 camels gathered in the desert and all grabbed paws and jumped around and sang all songs. They just don't do it. Bears do not do this. A bear is a very solitary character, and they do not have conventions where 497 bears gather on the side of a mountain and throw uh, bags of water on the other bears that are down at the bottom of the mountain and wear buttons and yell you know, and sit on rocks and blow horns. Well, uh, man has the fiesta thing deep down inside of him. And one of the very earliest examples of this, it must have happened when man was beginning to come out of the, the uh, amphibious state and his gills were beginning to disappear. His feet were still a little bit webbed. In fact, I know a lot of people whose feet are still webbed a great deal. But I know one guy that's got scales on his back. But uh, when they were just beginning to sneak out of the water and they were beginning to breathe the air, and it wasn't even polluted yet. You know, it's hard to believe that it was a time when you could breathe deep. You know, <gasps> nothing. I mean, now you're going to go, <coughs> black. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you do. Let's face it. I mean, and so the very first moment, there must have been a historic moment, when uh, Charlie is crunched down there, you know, he's hunched, sitting in the, sitting in the mouth of the cave and the wind is blowing past and the skies are gray overhead and the clouds are scudding past. And they hadn't even invented trees. It was very early. No trees. There were no dogs. Nothing like that. After all, if you didn't have no dog, you didn't need trees. And so there weren't any trees or any dogs. Well, you see, everything follows one after the other. Uh, nature has continuity to it. Uh, there are, things are important. Uh, things have, I mean, that's called ecology. In other words, turtles exist because frogs exist. Turtles eat frogs. And when the frog began to develop, the turtle followed naturally. Now the frog, of course, eats mosquitoes. And so, because there were mosquitoes, frogs came on the scene. Well, nobody's figured out why man came on the scene. <laughs> I mean, this has been a big problem with ecologists uh, for years because he doesn't fit, see. Uh, the first thing that man does when he arrives on any given scene is cut all the trees down. Uh, then he digs holes in the ground overturns all the sod, and then he uh, throws beer cans in the lake. And therefore, man is anti-nature. He's not part of nature. He's anti-nature. And so, Og and Charlie are squinched down, the two first anti-nature creatures on the face of the globe. Squinched down, and Charlie's looking out over the darkness, and Og is looking out over the darkness, and their hairy brows peering out their tiny beady eyes, red-rimmed, shot with, with incomprehension, of the fantastic world in which they have been cast, peering out into the darkness. And then suddenly, well, it wasn't so sudden. It took 422 million years, actually, but in those days, they didn't have Timex watches, you know. They didn't have any of this stuff. There was not, time wasn't invented. There was only light and dark. They didn't even, they had no days. They didn't, they had not invented Wednesday. Nothing. Just light and dark. And it didn't get very light either, because it was always cloudy. It rained a lot, see? It's always cloudy. And it didn't get very dark either, you see? Because of, the moon was bigger in those days. Do you know that the moon has washed away a lot? They claim that erosion has washed away a lot of the moon, and they claim that, the, oh, sure, like two and a half million years ago, the moon covered the whole sky. It's a big baby, you know, just laying up there. And so the two of them are scrunched down. 
silent, except for the sound of the wind. It's exciting, isn't it? That's the beginning. That was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. And suddenly, Og, out of the dark, sargasso sea of his mind. Man didn't even have minds yet like we know them. He just had this, this cottage cheese between his ears, see, and it was fermenting. It had not yet solidified. Out of that dark, vast blankness of this chunk of cottage cheese that hung between Og's ears. Now, they didn't have ears like we have ears. They had these two little gnarled, these two little knobs on each side and stuck out through the fur. See, a little bit. You just see them. Suddenly, out of that dark, that dark swamp of that cottage cheese mind came a thought. Now, that was a traumatic experience because they didn't come very often. In fact, the last one that Og had 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 occurred 217 million years before. And that's when he decided to climb out of the water. Now, I'm using Og here, of course. It's a symbolic Og. There were many Ogs. He had said, I had enough of this water jazz. And he climbed out and sat on the bank. That was the first thought. Now the second thought. Og. His eyes cloud even more than they're ordinarily clouded. Ooh. He looks over at Charlie. Charlie is sitting there looking out over the lake. Any minute now, he's expecting his future wife to crawl out. See, they didn't have women yet. They weren't invented. Don't ask me how anything happened. I don't know. They didn't have no women yet. That's all I know, see. They came later. In fact, they are not fully evolved yet, according to many men. See, at the... <laughs> Interesting thought. Speaking of being low on the uh, evolutionary scale, friends, this is W.O.R. in Fun City. Our great big fat old howling cave. Oh, let me tell you, Fun City is more of a howling cave of wilderness than many a Neanderthal man knew. And so, from Fun City, we send you this fun commercial. This is John K.M. McCaffrey for Shell Oil Company. On Tuesday evening, May 23rd, I came on nationwide television to kick off the new Shell Safe Driver Awards. Part of Fun City. Oh, oh, yes. Oh, oh, you want to hear about that thought, huh? Og, well, he turns, he turns to Charlie, see? And he looks over Charlie, and Charlie didn't look very good, actually, because he hadn't had a haircut yet. See, they hadn't invented any of that stuff yet, and they hadn't invented Life Boy. A dial soap was like 17 trillion years in the future, so Charlie wasn't really nice to be near. But on the other hand, either was Og. But they didn't know the difference, see, because nothing was nice to be near in those days. I mean, what were the saber-toothed tigers or the trichinopterises and the, the uh, <laughs> tyrannosauruses and rexes and all that stuff around there? Everything was dangerous. Every last thing. The whole. Do you know that at one point the whole world was, was composed of lava? And there ain't nothing worse than lava. You walk around in lava and you've got trouble. And if there wasn't lava, it was quicksand. And so, you know, it was a pretty rotten life one way and the other. It rained a lot and they didn't have, uh, nobody had invented uh, umbrellas or rubbers uh, and the cough drops. Nothing. They just sat there and scrunched down. And, you know, they hadn't even, they, they hadn't even dis discovered smoking cigarettes. Nothing nothing like that. They just, uh, you wonder how they, no TV even. I mean, that's really hell. So the two of them sat down there, scrunched over, and suddenly Og came up 
with one of the great turning point moments in all of mankind's history. He looked over Charlie and went, See, they hadn't really invented language yet. Language consisted of a series of belches, grunts, and uh, occasionally scratches. Well, this impinged on Charlie's ear pans. And after a long pause, you see, reaction time was very slow in those days. Because man was a very slow creature at that point. The rea- he had not learned footwork yet. He had not taken Dale Carnegie courses. He had not taken courses in charm and public speaking at Rutgers, any of that stuff yet. And so it took him a long time, he's thinking there, uh, maybe 100,000 years past. And then he turns to Og and goes, meaning, what did you say? And Og repeats, and a very dim light bulb lit up over Charlie's head. Og had said for the first time, Charlie, let's go and tie one on. It was the first party. He had suggested the first fiesta. And within five years, both of them were out in front of the cave, hollering, throwing rocks at each other. And Og was standing up on a cave, and he was singing a rudimentary song. And both of them were bagged to the ears on fermented coconut juice. And it was the beginning of the whole thing. What did it lead to? Well, it led to uh, democratic conventions. It led to the international plumbers amalgamated social and uh, union crowd meeting in Miami Beach for three days to elect officers, quote. It, uh, <laughs> it, led, to the, it led to the American Legion. It led to the Ed Sullivan Show. And it led to... Bring it up there, big. Hit it hard. You thought that there was no point to all this, didn't you? It led to tonight's radio program, which is brought to you by this serious radio station. And we entitled it Salute to the Indianapolis 500, or subtitled, Salute to one of the great nutty things in American life. And so, tonight, we salute Nutty Day in Indianapolis. Yes, friends, 364 days go by in Indianapolis and nothing happens. One day out of every year, Indianapolis turns on. Sort of. Well, as much as Indianapolis can turn on. After all, it's a 40-watt town in a world of kilowatt stations. And so tonight we salute Victory Circle. Oh, Victory Circle, how still thee lies under the Indiana moon. Well, not so still. There have been four cars go through it in the last seven hours. For those of you who don't know Victory Circle, Victory Circle is the Times Square of Indianapolis. And I mean square. However, uh, <laughs> however, at this very instant, and uh, I'm going to do this, so you might as well sit down now and rest. It's a program about the big 500. 
at this very instant in the darkness in the cornfields uh, surrounding now this is this minute because you see it doesn't start till tomorrow the, the, the real race but that isn't the race really for these people at this very minute there are probably in Indianapolis right now and all the streets that go uh, that kind of lead in and the, the lanes and the, the, the roads that lead into the big the big brickyard which is what they call the racetrack there, there must be probably at this point, I would guess an estimated, and I haven't been there for a couple of years, probably 20,000 automobiles just waiting in the darkness. Now, they've been waiting in the darkness now, many of them, for maybe two and three weeks. Some of them have been there as long as a month. Would you be, I'm not kidding you, Al. I'm telling you the truth. And I'm telling you, because you people in the East probably don't know anything about this. You, you, you sit and read about the Indianapolis... 500 in the Sports Illustrated, or you read about the Times, and all they write about generally is the race. Well, that, that really, in a way, uh, is, like, uh, is like if you're going to write about Christmas, all you write about is an ornament. I mean, the Christmas is one more than that. And the 500 race is one of the most enormous, one of the biggest, probably the, uh, the greatest camp meeting fiesta that America has in this day and age. Now, it started back right after the turn of the century. And uh, it started in the cornfields, in this great big yellow uh, red brickyard called the Indianapolis Speedway. It was just a big track, big oval laid out there. And this was in the early days of automobiles, and everybody was automobile nutty. But the thing that's important to remember is not that they came primarily to see the cars, which a lot of them did. They came because it was a thing to go to. It was a way to get out of the farm for a couple of hours. It was a way to get out of a little town like Jerusalem, Indiana, or like uh, Xenia, Ohio, or like uh, Clabber, Kentucky, or like Rabbit Hash, Kentucky. These are all real towns that I'm giving you names of. I'm not inventing them. Uh, how would you like to be living in Otterbein, Indiana? But there ain't no otters in Otterbein, Indiana, but there's a lot of people that look like otters. <laughs> you know, after uh, the snow is 40 feet deep in the in the winter time, you you've heard about their winters, and in the summertime the temperature is 104 degrees, and on thawing days they turn on the tornadoes, and so <laughs> so the people there is a very different type of man, and given given the opportunity, he will gather in great numbers to mill and to reassure himself that there are others, and that he's not alone in the darkness. Now, here in the, in the big cities, like uh, New York and places like Chicago and Los Angeles, they don't need that kind of affirmation that there are other human beings. But they do in places like Jerusalem, places like uh, New Bethlehem, uh, places like uh, Nazareth, Indiana. Uh, place, yeah, and, and, and somehow it all came to pass in Indianapolis that in the early days of the, this century, uh, 1904, 1905, I don't know the exact date, maybe in 1910, something like that, that the, the first race was held. And you know the man that won the first race that was held in Indianapolis just recently died a year or two ago. Won the absolute first race. And uh, that race became, within a very short time, one of the great fiestas of the entire Midwest. And they don't go there because they're nutty or car nutty, but they go just to be there where all those other people are. It's like a gigantic, enormous county fair 
Now, I suppose most of you people have never been to a real county fair who live out here in, in uh, you know, places like uh, Yonkers and stuff. But a real county fair always has races. Now, not necessarily trotting races. Now, all over Indiana, they have trotting races continually. And all, every county fair has a trotting grounds and the trotting races. All of them. You've, you've seen National Velvet and all. Well, it really is that way. They really do. And, uh, you know, there's always a little girl uh, who looks like Elizabeth Taylor who's taken that little colt, the one they call the runt, that's no good. And uh, her, her friend, Mickey, who looks just like Mickey, Mickey Rooney, you know. And uh, he rides it and they win. And there's a guy named Stephen Fetcher. He's who gave, pick up them pieces, pick up them pieces, little boy, let him go, let him go. Well, currently, I think he's going to win that race, Colonel. And, you know, I bet we're going to take the Kentucky Derby, Kentucky Derby next week. Well, this is happening in Indiana, you know. But as, as equally important, and you don't hear so much about this side of it, at every major county fair throughout Indiana, they also have automobile speed races. And, and uh, you go to the county fair and you see rising out of, the, out of the distance when you're approaching the Lake County Fair, you see rising out of the cornfields this great cloud of dust. These are called dirt track races. You see this great cloud of, you know, this huge yellow dust is in the air and you, you see the fence around it and you hear, wah, 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 and then you hear, some, <laughs> some hayseed, <laughs> some rube with a Sears Roebuck crash helmet on. Has just gone through 17 yards of fence in his <laughs> in his in his racing car. You see, the, the air is filled with superchargers, and everybody, get out of it, Ruth! Get out! She's going to burn, Ruth! Get out! And you see this guy jumping out of his car, and he's running through the cornfields, you know, with his pants on fire. And you know that you are at you are at the county fair. Well, that that uh, and they bet on him, you know. They bet on these races, these cars running around on the dirt tracks. And it is one form of suicide that many people here in the East have not yet discovered. And, uh, and so all the while, as you're wandering through the county fairgrounds, you go through the, uh, the strawberry jam uh, prize contest. You know, you walk through it and all these grannies are sitting around with their, with their blue hair and they're arguing about how rotten the judges were this year. That, uh, that uh, how, how Emily ever won with that terrible stuff she turns out. And, you know, she doesn't really, uh, she actually buys it at the A&P, you know, is what she does. And uh, <laughs> then you go through the quilt judging contest. And then you go through the, uh, the smallest tomato contest, the biggest tomato contest. And you go through all these things, the, the bulldogging. Oh, yeah, and another thing you always have, too, they have a horse pulling contest. And they have these big horses, and they, they pull against gigantic weights. And everybody cheers and yells, and the horses sweat. And then they have steak driving contests. You see these big, uh, these big rubes. And they've got these great big hammers and they're driving stakes into the ground. <laughs> oh, yeah, you don't see this stuff in the wide, wide world of sports, but that's big out there, you know. And there's a guy who'll be the state champion. He's the state champion, uh, a stake driver, and he has a big belt. And he walks around, and he wears the overalls and stuff, and for the whole year, everybody gets out of his way. And uh, this, this, is a, this is the county fair. Now, the, the integral part of it, and one of the most important parts of it, of course, is the race. And these are the dirt track drivers that go around from fair to fair, and drive in these things. Now, you have to look upon the Indianapolis 500 as the biggest county fair ever, any place in the whole world. And so everybody goes very early to the county fair. Well, preparations are made in, in, in the real fanatics, the people who really go to these things. They have their own, a special car that is used only for going to that race. Did you know that? Oh, that's an interesting thing. And they're all old. Uh, they'll have a 39 Ford. Or they'll have a uh, 37 Humpmobile station wagon. 
they have a 34 Graham Page Phaeton. Uh, and these old cars have been uh, old cars that they've had for like 25 years. The family has them. And they build them to be used at the race. They have big racks on the top where you can get up on top of the car. You have the pipes. They screw the pipes and they put the, they put the platform on top. They screw more pipes on the top. And then they put the ladder on the top of that. And then they screw more pipes on the top of that. And then they put another platform. And on top of that, they put more pipes. And then they put a big beach umbrella on the top of that. Now it's 40 feet high. And they all sit up on the top of this baby. It's 40 feet high. And then if a little wind comes, the whole thing tips over. <laughs> you know, the engineering is not so good. The spirit is there. But uh, they, they build these things for years. And, and they have a complete kit. Now, this, this kit is built for race watching. Obviously, there are like 250,000, quarter of a million people come to this thing, you know. So if you're going to sit in your car and watch the race, you can't sit in the car. Obviously, you're not going to see anything. So the cars go upwards until you see these vast, leaning towers of pizzas. In fact, some of these cars are so elaborate that they have hot and cold running water up at the top there. They have electrical outlets. They have TV sets now up there where they can sit and watch reruns of I Love Lucy while the race is being run, you know. And they have, they have card tables that come out of the floor and they sit and play cards. And they have beer coolers, the whole bit. You know, now, the, the, the thing of it is really interesting. It's not so much the race. It's what happens before the race. These people, by and large, all know each other. And at night, they wander around. They, the, the guy will have his, his three-week vacation that he gets every year. He will take it the, three, the two weeks, really, it's the three weeks before Memorial Day so that he can get in the car, his wife and the kid. He's been doing it for generations. He learned it from his dad. Now, some of them now are in their third generation now, and they've been coming to this race, man and boy, every year. And there are some old codgers that will walk in and out, you know, famous old codgers will walk in and out of the crowd. And at night, they all visit each other as they're parked along the roads. And Indianapolis, of course, makes it a regular thing. And they visit each other, and they sit on... It's like a vast trailer camp. And they're waiting for days before the race, and the old ladies visit. And they, these people will not see each other from one race to the next. And they will occasionally correspond, but they don't see each other. They're just this, this thing. They gather. And they'll talk about, did you hear what happened to, to Rafe? You know why Rafe isn't here? You know why Rafe isn't here? You know, he, he busted his knee, you know? And they all know who Rafe is. And back and forth, the stories go. And then in and out of the crowd will be the real old-timers. And these are like veterans of ancient, ancient wars. And they've got buttons all over them, many of them. And these buttons are souvenir buttons from all the races that they have attended. Some guys, believe it or not, have attended every Indianapolis Speedway race that's been held since just after the turn of the century. And they walk around there, you know, and they say, Well, I want to tell you this. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you this. Wilbur Shaw was good. Wilbur Shaw was good, no question about that. But, but did, did, uh, did you ever see George Robinson race? Did you ever see... And, and I will tell you, Ralph the Palmer. Now, there was a race driver, Ralph the Palmer. I'll never forget the time Ralph the Palmer came around the South Turn. He was driving a, he drove one of those Alfa Romeos, one of them, one of the Italian cars. He come around there with the Alfa Romeo, and she caught on fire coming around the South Turn. Well, you know what Ralph did? He had this mechanic named George Meredith. He come around the corner there, and he waved, he waved to George to jump out when he come around there because he's got to finish by himself. Well, I'll never, well, of course, these stories go on and on and on. And, and <laughs> you find this interesting? Well, these old, these old cats know every car that's ever run in the race. And, and they're not fooled, by the way. They're not fooled at all. Only the Easterner is fooled when it says uh, a Shell Oil 
a double overhead valve special. That kind of thing, you see. Uh, you know, you, you read the, the, the list of the race cars, you know, all the cars that are racing, and they have these names of companies like, uh, like uh, Hemingway Van Line Special. Well, you know that's not a Hemingway Van Lines car, obviously not. That's the name of the company that put up the dough to build this car. Well, what kind of a car is it? That's the thing that's important to these old times. They never sit around and say, Hey, did you ever see that board and pit milk special? Oh, that's a real... No, 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 no. They sit there and say, Hey, listen to that, Matt. You, you hear the shot? Hear that? Oh, man, listen to that. Oh, they eat nothing like the sound of an offie. Lift that offie. Well, they're talking about an offenhauser. Uh, of which you will find in the race tomorrow uh, a few Offenhauser cars will be run. This is a, a special race motor and engine that is used and has over the years dominated the tracks, although now they're being beaten out by the, by the uh, well, I suppose you can call them the, uh, the non-stock Fords, very non-stock. But nevertheless, uh, the, the hours before the race, these cars gather. And right now, at this time, it's now, it's now a quarter, 11 or so uh, before before the race, the night before, the, the tension gets unbearable. Now, why does it get unbearable? Are they anxious about who's going to win the race? Are they anxious about what car is going to win the race? Oh, no. They've got one thing in mind. And the family, the cousins, the uncles, the aunts, everybody is plotting and scheming for this one moment. Because at dawn, at 6 a.m., at the track, at dawn, in the quiet Indiana, just as the sun is beginning to come up, and you could see the edge of the golden light touching the grandstands. And down there, if you were lucky enough to be on the track before they open it up, you'll see a few figures moving around down in the pits. And you'll see maybe a, a, a bright yellow car that's being slowly wheeled out into the sunlight. And there you can see lying in the shade of one of the pits a long red rear-engine converted lotus just lying there you see you can smell the smell you know of that of that high test fuel and you can smell the oil and the gas and you can see that big oval out there it's been laid out and cleaned and polished for weeks in advance you see now they've got they've taken it out and they've practically sanded it down to get all the oil off before the big race and out there in the darkness just as dawn is coming up there is this fantastic it looks like a gigantic buffalo herd Millions and millions of ancient cars are, are all poised for this big moment, this big instant. And they're waiting, sitting behind the wheel of their car. And they've got them started running. You know, that old 1934 Hupmobile six-cylinder engine has seen 274 very hard thousand miles. And now the blue smoke is coming out of the back end. The fenders are up and down. And ahead of him is a guy in a Willie's Knight. He's <laughs> with his Willie's Night Touring Special, a 1936 beauty. <laughs> and they're all waiting. The beer is packed all around them. They've got their pinochle cards. They've got their sandwiches piled high. They've got their hot dogs already. The mustard, the piccalilli, the whole thing. The, the, the racks are ready to go up, and they're waiting. <laughs> what are they waiting for? They're waiting for the moment. X hour. The instant. They're waiting for that second when all of a sudden, boom! At exactly 6 a.m., the cannon goes off and the doors are flung open. Millions of cars surge forward, all looking for their parking place, the place that they have occupied since 1917. Oh! 
with crashed fenders, headlight lenses, muffled curses and screams, and they roar for me. At long last, the family, it actually arrives at the same spot on the same plot of crumpled yellow oil-stained grass in the infield. The same spot that they have occupied man and boy since old Uncle Charlie first attended this race when he was only four years old. And Uncle Charlie's been dead 19 years now, and he died at 96. Ah, they sit there for a moment. And all around them is this crowd of people, thousands of old cars. And the dust is rising. In, in, in like 42 and a half seconds, 19 trillion people come pouring through that track. Channel admission and so on, the whole thing. And they settle back. This is what they've come for. And he slowly gets out. The old Charlie gets up out of the front seat of his, his whippet. And he gets up on that running board and he starts putting up his rack. And everybody is putting each other's racks down. You know, look at that. What a piece of junk. They're putting up their racks. And by 10 o'clock in the morning, they're all sitting there with the sun beating down, and they're sipping their second glass of beer, and they're already on their third hand of pinochle. And out there on the track, you can... Wow! Wow! The last tune-up, the last instant. And then comes the moment of the big race. For that brief moment, they all stand up and look out over the track. And you see those 33 cars all lined up. And then the balloons rise into the air. And there's a great muffled roar from the crowd. 250,000 people. <sighs> and all the guys down in the infield toot their horns all at once. Ooga, ooga. And these cars roll on by on that first, that ceremonial lap. And then they hit that, that starting line after the first lap. There's that enormous roar that shakes the ground. The ground thunders under their feet. And they watch the first big lap go by. And then they all settle down and begin to play pinochle. This is what they come for. The hot dogs are all warmed up. They drag at the lemonade. Old Uncle Rafe takes out his bottle of Kentucky White Lightning. And the day has begun. And it will go on and on and on far into the night far into next morning when finally they arrive back at New Jerusalem, Indiana. Tired, hot, mad, sunburned, drunk, but ready for another year. <laughs> uh, may the best man win, may the best car win, and may the 500 go on forever. <laughs>